You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Children are our most important commodity. Full stop. We live in a world where it seems that everyone forgets that, and our children are not as protected or as cherished as they should be. Far too often, there are stories all over the news of children being beaten, kidnapped, and killed, and it seems that we have almost been desensitized to it on some level as a society. Sometimes our minds don't even register how old the person is that we're talking about when we hear a new true crime story. This week, we're going to look at a story that covers many children, and this story has everything. A hero, villains, heartbreak, freedom, and so much more. Perhaps, though, one of the worst parts of this story is the fact that even when you think that these children are out of harm's way because they're freed from their captives, there's more to come. Our own governments and agencies that have been put into place to protect our children still sometimes don't, and this is one of those cases where it becomes clear as day that there are problems in our world in terms of criminals, but there are also problems in our world with how we deal with tragedies like this one. Hello, my name is Lance, and welcome to episode 91 of Gone But Never Forgotten. How much hell can one family withstand? The Turpin family. On January 14th of 2018, after a lot of planning and thought on how to escape an incredibly awful situation, two girls would leave a house through a window in Paris, California. One of those girls, Jennifer, would be overwhelmed with fear and she turned back to the house, but the other girl, 17-year-old Jordan Turpin, continued away from the house and was able to call 911 on a deactivated cell phone that she had in her possession. I am going to play a quick snippet of the call here, courtesy of ABC, so you can get a feel for the circumstances. 911 emergency, what are you reporting? Um, hello? This is 911, do you have an emergency? Uh, I just went away from home because... I live in a family of 15, okay? Can you hear me? And we have abusing parents. Did you hear that? Okay, how did they abuse you? Okay, they hit us, they throw us across, they like to throw us across the room. They pull our hair, they 
Speaking Carol here. I have two, my two little sisters right now are chained up. Okay, how Did old you are you? I'm 17. What's your name? Golden Turpin. A second dispatcher picks up. Hello? Oh yes, I'm still here. I was actually on the road because I didn't even know about the sidewalk. You're supposed to be on the sidewalk, but I've never been out there. What's your address? Okay, you got to excuse me a minute. It's going to take a while. I've never been out. I don't go out much, so I don't know anything about the streets or anything. Does anybody at the house take any kind of medication? Oh, I don't know what medication is. Jordan would tell the 911 operator that their parents abused them, that the house was filthy and smelled so bad that sometimes it was hard to breathe. And, as you heard, she stated that two of her sisters were chained to the beds, and she would later add that she also had a brother who was chained to the bed. It took approximately 15 minutes for a deputy to arrive on the scene after Jordan's cell phone was traced because she did not know her address. Deputy Anthony Colici was the first deputy that arrived on the scene. He was nearing the end of his shift, and he assumed that like most runaway calls that he received, he would return the child home and be done for the night. He had no idea what he was arriving on the scene of. Deputy Kalachi started to ask Jordan some questions about the abuse and what was happening inside of the home. He asked Jordan if she had any proof of what was happening, and she said that she did. She pulled the out-of-service cell phone that she had dialed 911 on, and she showed him a photo of one of her sisters chained to a bed. At that point, the reality was starting to set in that this was not going to be a routine call. Deputy Kalachi told Jordan not to delete those photos under any circumstances. About an hour and a half after the 911 call was initiated, it was determined that the police were going to attend to the home under the guise of a welfare check. The officers knocked on the door for over two minutes before a man and a woman came to the door. The Riverside County Sheriff's Department said that they had received a call requesting a welfare check. The woman asked who would call in a welfare check, but the officers were able to demand to search the premises because there was a concern regarding a child. Therefore, they did not need a warrant. Both the man and the woman appeared exhausted when they came to the door, and they were breathing heavily. It was very evident that a lot of rushing around had gone on when the police arrived at their home and before the door was opened. Once inside, it didn't take long for all of the officers to realize the gravity of the situation that they had been alerted to by Jordan. Immediately upon entering the house, officers smelled the distinct smell of human excrement, and they also smelled the raw smell of rotting garbage. Dead animals, moldy food, and garbage was strewn quite literally everywhere within the house. As the officers pushed further into the home, there was nothing that could have prepared them for what they encountered. They started to come across the other 12 children who were in the house. 
One of the children had been shackled to the bed for weeks without being allowed loose. Police also believed that two of the girls had been unshackled upon their arrival, and they obviously corroborated Jordan's story by seeing the marks on their arms. The children were all bruised, frail-looking, and they were covered in dirt seemingly from head to toe. Upon meeting the children, officers believed that all of the people in the home were under the age of 18, when in fact, seven of the children were actually over the age of 18. The adult children were so malnourished that they appeared to be underaged. Officers would also find a plethora of journals that had been written by the children that relayed what was happening to them inside of the house. The one thing that officers were searching for and asking for the kids' help with was finding the chains that were used to chain the children to the bed. They could see the bruising, and they had seen the photos that Jordan had shown. They needed the chains. When they found the chains, around the same time was when other officers in the home realized that there was a bedroom that they had not yet seen. Inside of that room was the brother that Jordan had mentioned was also chained to the bed. David and Louise had not had time to get the chains off of him before the officers were in the house. David and Louise Turpin were the parents of the children that were found in that home, and the two people that answered the door more than two minutes after officers started to knock. David Allen Turpin was born on October 17th of 1961 and worked previously as a computer engineer. He graduated from Virginia Tech and was proficient in his field, having worked for Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman. Louise Ann Turpin was born on May 24th of 1968. David and Louise met in high school as they both attended Princeton High School in Princeton, West Virginia. The two would get married in 1985 when David was 23 years old and Louise was 16 years old. Both Turpins were very steeped in religion and they were Pentecostal Christians. They believed and announced early on that God had called them to populate the earth with many children. They would do just that, having ten daughters and three sons, with the oldest being born in 1988 and the youngest being born in 2015. Initially, the Turpin family lived in Fort Worth, Texas, and they lived there until 1999 when they would make the decision to move to the city of Rio Vista, Texas. In 2007, with the children getting older, David and Louise would purchase a trailer and put it on their property. Ten of their children would be moved, or forcibly confined would be more appropriate, into that trailer. At that point, David and Louise kept the two youngest children with them in the home and left the other ten children to fend for themselves, only bringing them groceries once per week, and not bringing nearly enough food to feed ten people. The children sadly remember making meals out of just ketchup or mustard, and eating leaves and grass as well, just to survive. The children would be trotted out for certain occasions, almost as a display, so that everyone would see that 
everyone was alive and having fun. One of those occasions was when David and Louise renewed their wedding vows. There is video and photos of the children, all dressed in the same clothing, dolled up, really, is what they were. All of it, for show. It's really sad looking back at those videos and photos because you can tell even then that the children were emaciated. The children would also leave the house for trips to Disneyland, which David and Louise apparently loved. The girls remember the emotions of joy at the fact that they were out of the house, and they had on clean clothes and nice clothes and were able to be free, but they also knew that when they went home, everything would return to normal. The same filthy home, the same filthy clothes, and the same disregard for their lives. In 2014, the Turpins would make a big move and move to Paris, California. Right off the bat, the neighbors found that the family was a bit strange. The children would only speak when spoken to, and they noticed that the children were very malnourished and pale as well. One of the most repulsive facts in this case is that Louise was a hoarder. She was a hoarder of children's clothes and children's games and children's toys. The house was literally filled with toys that the children were not allowed to touch, and the closets were all filled with clean, new clothes that had price tags on them and everything. Clothes that the children were not allowed to ever touch or wear. Not only were these people mistreating their children and making them live in squalid conditions, but they had the means to treat their children properly. This was not a poor family. They literally had everything that their children could need to have a happy life, but they chose to make those children live in a living hell for their entire lives. Eventually, David had to file for bankruptcy, and the family did cut back on what the children had even more. The children started to be fed only bread and peanut butter while, the, while David and Louise were eating takeout, fast food, and normal meals. The family was planning to make another move, and that was what caused Jordan to jump into action. She knew that her parents were planning a move to Oklahoma and she knew that she needed to call the police in some way before the family was moved again. She overheard Louise saying that they were all moving to Oklahoma and everyone was going to be chained all the time when they got there. Jordan's escape was truly a now-or-never attempt to save her and her siblings. When officers finally had a full grasp on what they were dealing with, they were stunned and absolutely overwhelmed. All 13 of the children were transported to the hospital to be checked on. They all were wasting away because of starvation and their muscles were atrophied from the lack of activity and from being chained to the beds. The children all seemed to have been severely damaged as well from emotional and physical abuse but also from solitude and isolation. These poor people had absolutely gone through hell, and now that they were free, they had no idea how to act around people. Of course, David and Louise were arrested and charged. They would be charged with 12 counts of torture, 
12 counts of false imprisonment, 7 counts of abuse of a dependent adult, and 6 counts of child abuse. David also received an additional charge for a lewd act on a child under the age of 14. The two were held in lieu of bail being posted. Louise's bail was set at $9 million and David's bail was set at $12 million. Louise's lawyer immediately tried to file for her case to be thrown out because he said that she suffered from histrionic personality disorder. HPD is a mental health condition that is marked by unstable emotions, a distorted self-image, and an overwhelming desire to be noticed. They said that if medicated, she could return to her family, and Louise even stated in court that when she got her family back together, she would ensure that there were no chains this time. Those were words that she said. I guess that everything else that happened to those poor children of hers was all right, as long as the chains were gone. Sometimes I don't like people very much. Is that a common sentiment, or am I alone here? It also did come out from Louise's family that she was sexually assaulted from a very young age, and that likely played a part in who she became and the things that she had done. The, the judge would throw that plea of mental illness out, and he said that regardless of her mental health, Louise posed a risk to the public if she was not in custody. It would be discovered that the pain and the torture that these two monsters doled out on their own children was very extensive. For years, David and Louise had imprisoned and beaten their children. They had also choked their children numerous times. The children were each only allowed to eat one meal a day, and they were only allowed to bathe once per year. 29-year-old Jennifer weighed only 82 pounds, or 37 kilograms, at the time of the rescue. The 12-year-old child's arm circumference was measured to only be equal to that of a four-and-a-half-month-old baby. Most of the children seemed to lack any knowledge of the outside world or what was beyond their walls. The children also had very limited vocabulary. As seen in the 911 call, Jordan didn't know what medication was, nor did most of the children understand what was happening when the police arrived on the scene, or for that matter, even what a police officer was. Realizing there really was no case to be had here in any form of defense, the initial pleas that David and Louise had entered of not guilty were changed with a plea deal. On February 22nd of 2019, David and Louise would change their pleas to guilty to one count of torture, three counts of willful child cruelty, four counts of false imprisonment, and six counts of cruelty to an adult dependent. Both of them were sentenced then to life in prison with the possibility of parole only after 25 years has been served. That would mean that both would be up for parole around 2043, making David 82 years old and Louise 75 years old. Many experts believe that because of the absolute carelessness towards human life, neither David nor Louise will ever be given parole. But that is easy to say now, of course. 
Stranger things have certainly happened. We all know it. David now is imprisoned at the California State Prison in Corcoran, and Louise is imprisoned at the Central California Women's Facility. Unfortunately, the stories and the heartbreaks for this family really did not come to an end here, though. The first thing that happened was the hospital staff all worked diligently to rehydrate all 13 of these siblings and adjust their stomachs to things like real food. Diane Sawyer on ABC's 2020 did an episode entitled Escape from a House of Horror, and they did an incredible piece covering the awful things that continue to go on in the lives of these 13 Turpin siblings. Three years after they had received their freedom from David and Louise, they hoped and expected to find stories of love, triumph, and joy. They were not prepared for what they started to uncover. Even the district attorney in California himself started to speak out on the case because he says that he is absolutely appalled that one of the worst cases of abuse in Californian history went down in this case, and all of the people who were supposed to be in the corner of these 13 children have failed them on so many levels. ABC would start to unravel a horrible mess. They found out that when the children entered the system, things were not good. Some of the children wound up being homeless at times, couch surfing at times, attending churches for free meals because they could not manage money because nobody took the time to teach them how to do that. Some of the adult children were placed in housing that was in awful areas of the, of the city, areas referred to as the bad part of town, and one of the adult children was even assaulted in one of those neighborhoods. These were 13 people who had no idea about how to live in the outside world. They had very seldom left the house. Nobody had taught them social convention or how to survive in really any way, shape, or form in the world outside of their parents' home or the trailer. One thing that does need to be mentioned here as well is the fact that there was a massive fundraising effort undertaken by people from all of the world who didn't even know this family. That effort had raised over $600,000 US for these 13 victims. The money was put into a government trust fund and done in such a way that there is no access to the public to see how much of the money has been spent and what the money is being spent on. The oldest brother said that he and his siblings have reached out in the past to the public guardian, Vanessa Espinoza, that was put in charge of their trust. That person was supposed to be entrusted with ensuring that the siblings all had proper health care, nutrition, housing, and education, and she would often deny all requests that were made by the siblings to access that money. The brother said that he had called Vanessa's office to request a mode of transportation, a bicycle, and she turned down his request. As for the children who were under 18, they were failed numerous times by the foster agencies that had been put in charge of looking after them. Some of the children have even been re-victimized and abused within foster homes that they were placed in. So, 
There has been so much failure in the lives of these poor 13 Turpin children. First and foremost, of course, they went through absolute hell as they were growing up. They were tortured, and they were shown the exact opposite of how one human being should treat another human being. Then, when they finally rose above all of that, they finally found freedom. The services and the people that were sworn to protect them have failed in an incredible amount of ways. But there were people in the past who could have spoke up as well. When the Turpin family left Texas, the neighbors would find a place that had beds and chains and was filthy and really showed the awful conditions that the Turpin family was living in. Many people over the years saw how emaciated those children were and many people over the years saw and heard things that likely could have saved those 13 children from some of the abuse that they suffered at the hands of their parents. I'm always a strong advocate. If you even have an inkling that something is amiss or someone might be in some form of trouble, you need to make a phone call. Think about the people after the fact in this case that could have stopped David and Louise and how they must feel now knowing the absolute disgusting nature of the lives of the 13 people behind those walls. They chose to not speak up, and if you have an opportunity to help someone or save someone, then I think as a human being that's something that you absolutely must do. We need to learn to start standing up for one another again because nobody else is standing up for us. People are suffering like these 13 children and adults were suffering every day. This could be happening in your city. And these people chose to simply, quote, mind their own business rather than act. It's appalling to me that for all of those years, the family was registered at a school as well. The home school that the family had registered listed David as the principal and Louise as the teacher. Barely anyone ever saw these children and nobody ever stepped in from the school system to look into this home school and pay any attention to what might be happening to these children that they did know existed. As of the last that I can find, Jennifer is training to become a manager of a restaurant, and her true desire in life is to be a Christian pop artist. Jordan has actually become a very popular influencer and a TikTok star. She managed to graduate high school in just one year and had started to take some college courses. The other siblings in the case obviously are protected because of age and different things, so those are really the only two that we can find a full update on. At the end of the 2020 episode, Jennifer said something that I found to be incredibly moving. She said that her real dream in life was for people to hear the Turpin name and see success. She wants people to see 13 children that overcame everything and showed strength and determination in spite of incredible odds. She doesn't want people to dwell on the atrocities that happened to the family. She wants them all to succeed so that people know the Turpin name for other reasons. Something that we need to remember is that yes, the world around us seems to be falling apart on most days, but we also need to remember that we need to be like the Turpin siblings. 
We need to wake up each day and make the most of whatever we have because things can always be worse and we do take a lot of things for granted around us. Thank you for listening to Gone But Never Forgotten and thank you for being a goner. I appreciate all of you so much. Please come back for the next episode and in the meantime, remember to be thankful for what you have in your life and most of all, be better.